Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend, James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. I've posted some images on our Instagram account to illustrate these discussions, which are often violent and generally quite bloody. Welcome back to our section on objects from history, 100 bloody objects. What do you have for us today, Jamie? Object number three, an Irish terrier in a field of poppies. Courageous canines, the remarkable story of the true dogs of war. Uh, this one's going to be tough. I have my lurcher Maggie to hand if I become too emotional. And Jamie has his Irish terrier, Liberty Bell, so we're well prepared. As companions to men, dogs go back to the cave. Over 20,000 served on the Western Front in the Great War, many of them suffering and dying with the men. Let's start with the Animals in War Memorial, Jamie. OK, Tom. Anyone stumbling upon that memorial in London's Park Lane will see a frieze on both walls. And on the left-hand frieze, peering from around the front of a goat, is a quizzical, somewhat mischievous face of a dog. And that dog is an Irish terrier. And it's there for a very good reason, Tom, and it's because it was the preeminent breed in the trenches of the Western Front. The head of dog training, Lieutenant Colonel Richardson, who set up the dog training camp in Lyndhurst in the New Forest during the First World War, said of them that they almost knew that the job they did was incredibly important, of great import, and that they seemed to be honoured to be serving crown and country. Now, whatever the truth in that, it cannot be denied that they saved the lives of countless numbers of British soldiers, and that is why they're on the memorial. Yeah, well, it's, it is a very moving memorial, and we'll come back to it towards the end of this talk. But um, while we're on that subject of Irish terriers, why particularly the Irish terrier? Firstly, they're the perfect all-rounder. I guess we're talking about right place, right time, right breed. They were hardy, they are hardy, they're highly intelligent, they're athletic, they're strong, they're fast, they have the nose of a tracker dog, they have great hearing. So they were perfect for guard, sentry, patrolling, going out with first aid, finding wounded servicemen out in no man's land, uh, guarding against German patrols coming forward. The only thing that they weren't always quite so good at was as a messenger dog, because as Colonel Richardson said, uh, they were always stopping to talk to friends, old, new or imagined. Too, <laughs> too friendly. Well, my mum uh, had an Irish Terrier and um, uh, her, the dabbling of her wet whiskers on, on your face was, was a sort of a mix. It was a very friendly gesture, but it was quite alarming. As well, <laughs> well I've, I, I've always said, if, if I were wounded out in no man's land, the creature that I would want to come and find me is an Irish Terrier. And <laughs> What, more than the Padre? Oh, any day. <laughs> and the, 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 the um, Colonel Richardson said no creature could go further on a bowl of army biscuit. They, they just had that, that, that hardiness. And 
they're also incredibly convivial. They're they're just charming and upbeat and and high spirited. And it, it it's it's no wonder that Jack London, the the famous author who wrote White Fang about sledge dogs, should also write several books about the Irish Terrier. He was besotted with them. Yeah. So they they fit in perfectly. Yes, that would be my second point. They 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 they, they just fit in. In their DNA is really the dog that was brought up with large Irish families. So they're used to a lot of people. They're used to livestock, horses. I mean, I know people, friends of mine with Irish Terriers, who, where the Irish Terriers have adopted uh, orphaned hedgehogs, baby hedgehogs. They, they've looked after family rabbits. Um, I've seen one Irish Terrier called Lucy. Uh, that's a, a pet of friends of mine who uh, saw children going down a slide and the next moment she had climbed the ladder and was going down the slide herself. She's climbed ladders into the treehouse. The, the daughter climbed onto the roof and was sitting there, turned around and found Lucy the Irish Terrier next to her. Um, Lu, 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 every, every time you phone them, um, the, the landline, the house line, the, 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 Lucy the Irish Terrier picks up the phone. They're, they're, they're into everything. They know everything. And... It, it's not surprising that country life in the last decade have had a couple of front covers. One had two beautiful Irish terriers with when Irish eyes are smiling, and the other one had two beautiful Irish terriers with the gentleman's friend. And it sort of captures what they were back in the Great War. It's their empathy, their warmth. So they are the sort of perfect Edwardian dog. Yes, King Edward VII had a beloved Irish terrier called Jack, uh, who's buried in Dublin because Edward VII was on a visit there when, when Jack died, so, so Jack's buried in Dublin. Uh, Field Marshal Haig had one called Napa. That makes me feel slightly better about Field Marshal Haig. <laughs> but it, they, they, they were the, 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 the dogs of choice of that era. I, I have a photograph of uh, my great-grandfather in 1908, in the middle of India, and there he is in his solar topi hat and his white linen suit and his cane, and there at his feet sits an Irish terrier. They were they were just around. Yeah, I think I've got a similar picture somewhere of my grandfather with his you know men sitting around in a sort of football squad, and at his feet is if it's not an Irish terrier, it looks like a very close match to one. <laughs> well, they've always been in my family. I mean, my first memory is an Irish terrier face coming over the edge of the pram. So they've been a constant in my life. And I've always said they're a life force and a force for good. And what I've seen, how good they are with the sick and the dying, I can see why they brought such comfort to the men in the trenches of the Great War. They, they just have this enthusiasm and this empathy and this this charm and it's it's this flame in the eye that that's irreplaceable okay uh, jamie so tell us about the irish terriers in the trenches of the first world war well given that i have libs here she'll correct me if i get my facts wrong but <laughs> there are some extraordinary stories there's paddy the irish terrier who served with the new zealand regiment and paddy used to lead the charges across no man's land at gallipoli and stand on the enemy t trenches, barking down at the Turks. And when most of the battalion were killed, only two men were left standing from that battalion. Uh, Paddy was still there, and the, the battalion reformed. Paddy went with them, was made a sergeant, uh, turned up on the Western Front, slightly shell-shocked -shock from what he had been through before. But he guarded the stores, visited people in hospital, visited the trenches to say hello to people, 
And he survived and he retired to live with an old lady in Kent. And when he died, age 16 and a half, she sent his collar and disc to the New Zealand Regiment in Auckland. And it's still in their museum to this day. There was another Irish terrier called Prince and his master, uh, Private James Brown, uh, had to go away to war. And Prince didn't like this one bit. He was back in England. He, 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 he tagged on to a column of soldiers walking through the town and ended up in Southampton, took himself aboard a ship, ended up in France and found his master. And he had a reputation as an amazing ratter. He, he, he used to catch, his record was 130 rats in one day. And his party piece was uh, balancing a coin on his nose. And if someone shouted the name of the regiment, he'd toss it up in the air and catch it. That was his party. But, but, but he and his uh, master, James Brown, actually got back to England safe and sound. So they survived. Um, another Irish terrier, Rags, served with the US First Army. And he had an amazing capacity uh, to tell from which direction an enemy shell was coming and whether it's coming towards the position and would flatten himself and warn all the men around to do exactly the same. And, and, and uh, he was wounded, lost an eye though, uh, was gassed. But he ended up dying in 1936 back in America, age 20. So, and if you go to the Illinois Military Museum, you'll find the stuffed body 100 years on of Goldenberg, um, a beloved Irish terrier who served with the 102nd Division on the Western Front. And he again was gassed and wounded. And you can see the horrors that so many of these dogs went through, but he was so loved that he's still in the museum, still seen by people today. Well, I definitely, if I was in that situation, wanted to have had a dog around. I think we all would. Uh, so what dogs w didn't work? From Colonel Richardson's point of view, the ones that, that he didn't want on the Western Front were really dogs such as retrievers and Labradors, not because they were unpleasant or anything like that. It was that they simply weren't compatible. There were no rules for them. He, he always thought the retrievers and Labradors were too compliant and therefore wouldn't show the initiative. And if you look at a Labrador, they're the wrong shape, they're not that hardy. They have soft pads. You know, some of them are incredibly brave. I mean, look at the two Dickin medals given to guide dogs uh, in 9-11 who took their blind masters down hundreds of flights of stairs and collapsing, crumbling, dust-strewn, flame-smoke-ridden um, twin towers in New York. So, but it, it just meant that they weren't right for that environment. And I suppose with a Labrador, you don't really want a dog that's going to eat all the food in the trench and then go out into no man's land and bring back a German grenade. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're going to get letters. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I have had Labradors, so, you know. I didn't... <laughs> and anyway, it's not just, it's not just retriever-type dogs, you know. Not all terriers are suited. No, no. I mean, Richardson didn't want fox terriers either, actually, because he thought that they'd treat everything as a game. So... But other breeds that were there in, in large numbers included collies as messenger dogs and also Airedales. And there are some incredible stories involving those dogs. Let's do that then. Let's move on to messenger dogs and the tales of Daring Do. Well, there was an amazing messenger dog called Jack, and he, he's a legend because he saved an entire battalion of Sherwood foresters who were cut off, 
their communications were cut because of a barrage, so there were no field telephones or anything like that. So they put a message in his collar pouch and sent him off. And Jack managed to get back across miles of, of field and shell craters, uh, dodging and ducking and weaving through. And he got to his master. He, his leg was shattered by that stage by a shell blast. And he delivered the message and then fell dead at his master's feet. There was another extraordinary dog um, with uh, the strange name Satan. It's a great name. <laughs> he, his great name. And he was, a, he was a black crossbreed, and probably with a bit of collie in him. And he worked for the French. And he turned the tide in one of the battles of Verdun by managing to get a message forward. His handler was killed, but he sped forward. He took two bullets in, in, in his legs and managed to crawl and deliver this message to the men in the trenches saying, for God's sake, hold on, we'll reinforce you tomorrow. And the, and the men held the line. And there were some other legendary dogs. The Black Watch had a fantastic border collie called Dash. There was another dog called Trusty who, although he was blinded by gas, uh, he managed to get a, a, a message all the way back to headquarters and again dropped dead at his handless feet with a bullet in his spine. So you can see why years ago when I was researching this in the library of the Imperial War Museum, I, I had to stop myself sobbing very loudly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I've just finished uh, reading Dennis Winter's book, The First of the Few, which is a, an account of uh, the Royal Flying Corps in the First World War. And um, it goes through, it, it's, a hard, it's a tough book because it gets, you know, every chapter gets more relentless and more gruesome. But one ray of sunshine in it is the a description of the dogs, the incredible pets that played, uh, well, in fact, I could read a little bit here. It says, pets played the same role as music in reminding a fighting man of the gentler side of his nature. Dogs are a great favourite and they were easily acquired in a war zone in which strays always regarded uniformed men as their particular friends. And then it goes on to say, you know, Bishop was an ace. Bishop kept three chows, McCudden, his bulldog bruiser. And in the evening, such dogs ringed the mess stove. And by day, they waited on the field like squires for the return of their masters. And wasn't there a Jack Russell who knew the planes and knew exactly which one, which flight his own master was in? Absolutely. Here's a description. Stood on the tarmac today watching my flight take off. Chili's little fox terrier was there with me. That little beggar has more sense than the average human being, sat on his haunches and wouldn't be coaxed away until the flight came back, didn't even cock his ears when B-flight came in a little while after ours had taken off, but when A-flight returned, watched each machine as it landed, and when Chili climbed out of his bus, he jumped all over him. Some bishop, asked if dogs had souls, said he couldn't imagine a heaven without dogs. Damn right, best little friends in the world. Oh, I think we know that. I mean, Shivers up my spine. Yeah, well, I, I, and now you know, now you can see why, why they were so important on the Western Front, at the air bases and in the trenches. But, Jamie, there were some more exotic creatures as well, weren't there? Oh, there was even a lion. Only, only that era could produce those sort of menageries. General Tom Bridges had won a lion cub in a raffle in Paris and brought it back to his headquarters in a picnic hamper. The lion was called Poilu, uh, which was a sort of slang for a, for a Tommy, basically, for a French soldier. 
poilu grew and was fed on horse flesh from all the dead horses that were lying around, and, and there were always dead horses, as we know. Poilu grew and grew, and when uh, General Bridges lost his leg to a shell blast, he suggested that Poilu should be fed it. But I think wiser heads probably pointed out that that might have given him a taste for human flesh and turned into a man-eater. So it didn't happen. But that era, so many people had menageries of of animals. I, I'll never forget that um, the ghastly traitor and Soviet agent, Kim Philby, his father, Sinjin Philby, who was a mad explorer and adventurer, uh, lived with a troop of trained baboons. So no one raised an eyebrow. Yeah, and uh, my grandfather, he had a, in between the walls, he had a bear. He had a lion as well, who he gave to the king of Egypt, Farouk, and um, all sorts of other odd animals, but many and mostly dogs. Now, have you got any postscripts for us on animals in war? Well, I have, but it's a different war, Tom. It's the uh, Waterloo campaign. And it's just to show how animals, dogs in particular, have really been such constant companions to soldiers throughout the years. Um, a British infantry company adopted a small dog who loved being with them. They loved him. He really enjoyed the skirmishes with the French. He'd run up and down, barking every time there was a sort of firefight. Just before the Battle of Waterloo, this infantry company happened to camp uh, near the Brunswickers, the Brunswick Regiment, Germans. The Brunswickers promptly caught the dog and ate him. And rather than getting mad, the British infantry guys got even. What they did, they cut the buttocks off a dead French soldier, cooked them, and sold it to the Brunswickers as ham. So, so I think the moral is don't piss off the Brits, don't mistreat their dogs, and never accept cooked meat from a stranger. At the beginning of this talk, I mentioned the memorial off Park Lane, uh, Hyde Park, Jamie. Yes, I'd suggest that anyone who's in London who loves animals should go and visit that memorial and perhaps try and find that face of the Irish Terrier and pay their respects to that Irish Terrier and to all the animals on that memorial. Uh, the goats, the camels, the horses, the pack mules, the donkeys, because they all served and so many of them died and suffered. I knew it was going to be tough, this one. So I'll leave you with the inscription on the Animals in War Memorial in London's Park Lane. This monument is dedicated to all the animals that served and died alongside British and Allied forces in wars and campaigns throughout the time. And then in smaller print below that, it says, they had no choice. And that's why we will and we should remember them. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck.